Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and honestly, Eric, I'll admit it, I actually had to double check exactly which podcast I was introducing for a moment because, well, I probably shouldn't be revealing this publicly, but I've been two-timing you. Um, <laughs> but it's okay. It's all in the family, which makes it better or worse depending on your perspective right. um so in the temporary absence this past week of our friend brian campbell i joined uh, luke thomas on morning combat earlier this week and uh so as you cheated with me on bill detloff <laughs> right. so i now have cheated on you with luke but don't worry it was a casual fling a one-time thing <laughs> if you will he is to use the parlance of the boxers involved in the classiest promotion of all time my side piece. <laughs> nice. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that makes it any better, Kieran. It's uh, it's 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 like it's like you telling me it was just physical. It didn't mean anything. That that doesn't really make it uh, any better to hear that. Um, but uh, yeah, if Luke is your side piece, uh, I would certainly advise not to let Adrian Broner anywhere near him. AB is known for stealing side pieces. Um, I have to say, I listened. I enjoyed that podcast. And uh, even though you were Luke's guest. He kept citing things I said on our last pod. So I like to believe that even though he was with you, he was thinking yes. about me. Yes. Now, imagine if he'd called out my name during the podcast. That would have gotten awkward. Uh, that's true. Yes. It was a lot of, it's great having you, but why can't you be more like Eric? <laughs> right. He didn't say that, but he was it saying was that with it his eyes. Implied. Yes. It was implied. Yes, exactly. So. <laughs> um, we actually, in this podcast... Uh, have lots to get to. It's a positively overstuffed post-Thanksgiving extravaganza, if you will. We have a major Showtime pay-per-view event to look forward to. The rare Sunday night fight card, headlined by Javante Tank Davis versus Isok Pitbull Cruz. So we'll go in-depth, previewing the whole card and making our official predictions. And that's not the only lightweight title fight of note, as we will also preview Devin Haney versus Jojo Diaz. Uh, we'll also talk some recent pay-per-view numbers, and Eric will count down the top five cruiserweights of all time. But we start with an absolutely fantastic weekend of boxing that we just witnessed, headlined by a pair of close decisions that left a pair of defeated fighters screaming robbery. There was perhaps the upset of the year in a fight of the year contender at the Garden between George Cambosis and Teofimo Lopez, and we'll break that down shortly. But let's start with another fight of the year contending war at the Park Theatre in Las Vegas on Showtime. This one, less bloody, but no less action-packed, as Stephen Coolboy Steph Fulton eked out a majority decision win over Brandon Figueroa to unify belts at 122 pounds. This fight lived up to all of our expectations. It didn't seem like it would for the first round and a half when there was a lot of holding and it seemed perhaps an ugly clash of styles, but it quickly got better and then it got downright great. It was Figueroa's nonstop pressure and body shots versus Fulton's subtle defensive moves and cleaner, faster punches. There were ebbs and flows. Uh, Fulton appeared to build a lead early, but Figueroa seemed to have him on the verge of wilting at various points in the second half of the fight. Uh, but Fulton swept round 11 on all three cards and took round 12 on two of three. Uh, David Sutherland ended up handing in a 114-114 draw, but he was overruled by a pair of 116-112 cards from Dave Moretti and Tim Cheatham, making Fulton the winner and now 20-0 with eight KOs while Figueroa takes his first loss. 
He's now 22-1-1 with 17 knockouts. The words fight of the year were thrown around, uh, I guess by people who've already forgotten about Fury Wilder 3, but this is in the conversation for second best fight of the year, and I think round 6 and 10 will garner round of the year consideration. Uh, In Brandon Figueroa's mind, it's also the robbery of the year, Uh, but I disagree with him. I had it 116-112 for Fulton. Kieran, how did you score it? And what stood out to you about the way both young men performed in this battle? I had it 115, 113, Fulton. Um, even though uh, Al said on the commentary that it wasn't an 8-4 fight, I, I don't agree. If you had it 116, 112, Fulton, I certainly wouldn't question you. If you had it 115, 113, Figueroa, I wouldn't argue with that either. This was right. a damn close fight with an awful lot of swing rounds and a lot of it depended on what you saw and what you like to score um you know when it was to a large extent what we anticipated and even predicted it would be we knew that figueroa would come forward would press would smother would throw body punches would pressure that he'd try to force fulton to fight his fight we knew also that while fulton might try to box and move there was also a very good chance that would not only be forced to stand and trade but that he would willingly stand and trade and, and that's exactly what happened um you know you mentioned how fulton you know sort of had the better of things early on and, and honestly for me i thought he won the fight in the first four rounds mm-hmm. uh, steve farhood gave him three of those first four i gave him all all four of the first four but then figueroa just kept going forward kept hitting him to the body um slowly felt like he was starting to sap some strength from him taking the snap out of some of Fulton's punches, um, prevented him from getting off some of the punches that he that he wanted to, until I thought Fulton found a second wind in, in round eight. Um, I guess what stood out to me was, as I sort of said, just how much the fight looked like everything we expected to be. Right. Just how most folks who knew these guys and knew how they fight predicted it would look. And yet, despite all of that, neither man was really entirely able to prevent the other one from doing what everyone figured he would. Um, like, in a sense, Figueroa, of course, was the proactive one. He was the one who dictated the geography of the fight, who forced it into a brawl, because that's what he does. And you could argue maybe it was incumbent upon Fulton to prevent him from doing that, to step around more, to stick and move. But honestly, you just have to give Figueroa for making it very hard, if not impossible, to do that. And, you know, as he's already showed this year against Angelo Leo, Fulton's perfectly happy to fight fire with fire. Yeah. Um, and when he did that, particularly in the first third of the fight, but also I think crucially in at least part of the latter rounds, he did so very effectively. He punched between Figueroa's punches early, beat him to the punch consistently early and inconsistently later. Um, And he's shown now conclusively that if you're a pressure fighter, he is willing to forego his boxing skills and beat you at your own game. Um, You could argue he could have or should have moved more. And he did try at times, including at the start of round 11, after, you know, he seemingly got hurt in round 10, but Figueroa just reeled him back in. Um, You know, you could maybe argue Figueroa could change his game up a bit more, but that's who he is. He says, here I am. This is who I am. This is what I bring to the table. I dare you to do something with it. Look, basically, we thought we would have an incredibly exciting fight between two world-class boxers, and we got a tremendously exciting fight between world-class boxers. There's a reason why we were really excited about this fight (laughs) from the moment it was announced months ago. Um, And these guys delivered everything we expected from them, I thought. It was a tremendously well-fought fight between a guy who fights basically one way very effectively and one who can fight different ways 
and on this occasion, you know, chose to or was forced to, you know, fight fight the fight of the other guy. Um, so Fulton didn't get that ninth round KO he, he predicted. He never looked like getting the any kind of KO. Right. But he did make our predictions look pretty good. We did both have him winning by decision, although we said unanimous, not majority. Um, so anyway, it's pretty clear, I think, that for me, the fight overall at least met my expectations of it. What about the guys individually? Did either Fulton or Figueroa meet or exceed your expectations in this fight? And what do you make about Figueroa's complaining about the scoring afterwards? Did he come off poorly at all? Well, I mean... I felt for Figueroa. Um, that, that's a tough way to lose your undefeated record in a close yeah. fight where you were the one making the fight and you felt like your punches were doing more damage. I think he was well within his rights to say he thought he won and to be upset about the decision. I just wish he hadn't used the word robbery because it was not remotely applicable here. Um, but I forgive it. It's the emotion of the moment. And it did lead to some entertaining back and forth with Fulton. Uh, you know, Figueroa said the crowd knows who won and Fulton correctly pointed out. So what? These are your fans. Uh, then Fulton tried to throw the Julio Seha draw decision at him. And Figueroa said Seha missed weight for that fight. It was a lively and well-reasoned bit of debate. Uh, contentious, but not quite unclassy. As for the fight itself, and how they each performed relative to my expectations. I did predict a slightly more clear-cut win for Fulton, so I would say Stephen Fulton equaled my expectations, and Figueroa actually exceeded them slightly in defeat. His pressure is something. Um, in the fifth round, Al Bernstein said, you cannot discourage Brandon Figueroa. And that pretty well sums it up. Uh, Fulton tried everything. He fought inside. He fought outside. He stood and slugged. He went to the body. Nothing discouraged Figueroa. Uh, but Fulton was still outlanding him in terms of clean punches and winning more rounds, in my view. Um, but to get back to what you were saying about how many close swing rounds there were, I put my little asterisk in my notes, meaning that it was a close round. I put that asterisk next to seven of the 12 rounds. It was wow. Yeah. One of those fights where, you know, I, I thought that Fulton was winning the slight majority of the battles early on, but that Figueroa might have been winning the war. You know, if, if he yep. had gone on to dominate the late rounds and maybe stop Fulton, I wouldn't have been shocked. But Fulton is tough. He was in great shape. I thought he won the last two rounds fairly clearly, especially the 11th. Um, but geez, what just what a fun fight. Um, yeah. The, the phone booth warfare in the sixth round, particularly nose to nose, no holding really reminded me of Corrales Castillo for a minute or two there. Um, both of these guys are just all fighter. Fulton did a lot of the stand and trade more than he should business that he did against Angelo Leo, as he said, but uh, a lot of that was because Figueroa forced him to do that. Um, yeah. Like I'm thinking even prime Floyd Mayweather against Figueroa, would he be able to keep Figueroa entirely yeah. at a safe distance for 12 rounds? I don't think so. He would still, yeah. uh, that pressure would get to him a little bit. Uh, Figueroa just knows how to get in close. He goes to the body with those long arms. I was really impressed with both guys and there might come a day when they're both on pound for pound lists, you know, yeah. probably not at the very top, maybe toward the bottom of the top 10 or something. But if that happens, this fight will look even more significant in retrospect. Yeah. Um, let's both weigh in quickly on the idea of a rematch. Brandon doesn't seem to want to do it at 122 pounds. He seems to have decided he needs to move up in weight. Do you want to see an immediate rematch, Kieran? Or is this one where it could be like Morales and Barrera? You let it breathe and maybe come back to a rematch at a different weight in a couple of years. 
Yeah, I think maybe the latter. I, I'm perfectly okay with letting rematches of, of fights like this, you know, breathe, to use your term. Um, yeah, there's always the danger that events overtake us and we end up not seeing them against each other again. But whatever happens, these two guys are going to give us plenty of good action in the years to come. And like you said, you know, maybe if they are still able to to add some more notches to their belt by the time a rematch would come along at say 126 in a couple of years it would be that much bigger um and also look Fulton's had two incredibly bruising encounters with two tough brawling mauling buddy punches this year let him take some time off and then fight someone else with a different style then come back you know um Figueroa's had this fight he's also had a battle with COVID in the last few months uh, a battle that Fulton had last year Figueroa, I think, you know, you could see Fulton having a slightly easier fight. I'm not sure if Figueroa's ever going to have an easy <laughs> fight, or at least a fight that's easy on him because of just the way that he fights. But he can also take a step back, a metaphorical step back. He doesn't seem capable of taking physical steps <laughs> right. back. Um, I'm sure Figueroa would love a rematch, but like he said, it, he seems to feel that he needs to go up a weight division. Look, if we did get the rematch next, I'm not going to complain. No one's going to complain. But... Let him have a couple of interims, see if Fulton can unify all the belts against Akhmadaliev, and then let them rematch either for all of those, or let Fulton then move up, and we and we just start this all over at 126. And and they're both young too. Right. Uh, so anyway, that's what I think. What about you? Do you do you agree with that, or do you want to see him get right back in there? Um, I'd love to see it, of course. But um, if I'm Stephen Fulton, I'm willing, but I'm not exactly eager. Um, I mean, right. he's the guy who escaped with the win here. Uh, and it took everything he had. He knows now how hard it is to beat Figueroa, to hurt Figueroa. I can't imagine him wanting to do it again. Yeah. And he has a built-in excuse not to. If Figueroa insists on moving up to featherweight, then cool boy Steph gets to say, well, I'm not a featherweight. I'm a junior featherweight. Let me try to clean out this division. Maybe I'll see you at 126 in a year or two. Um, you brought up Akhmedaliev as a possibility for Fulton. Um, Figueroa in claiming robbery, one of the things he said was that it was a fix so that they could make Fulton Akhmedaliev. The fix was in. <laughs> that is not an easy fight to make politically, and no. it's not a multi-million dollar fight. So kind of an empty accusation there, in, in my view, from Figueroa. But again, I have no big issue with Figueroa venting emotionally in that way. I do kind of hope that he after he cools down, comes back and does some sort of interview after the the fact, when the emotions have settled down and something where he says, you know, I rewatched the fight. I thought I won, but it was close. Congratulations to Stephen Fulton. Hopefully we'll do it again someday. Yeah, indeed. So if Fulton doesn't end up rematching with Figueroa, one option for his next fight could be the guy who prevailed in the co-feature, also by majority decision, Raiz the Beast Aleem. Uh, Aleem raised his record to 19-0 and with 12 KOs by pulling out a tough, 10-rounder against Eduardo Baez, who falls to 22-2 with seven KOs. Uh, Baez didn't produce the volume of punches we anticipated. That was the thing we were perhaps most looking forward to in this fight. <laughs> Instead, he acted as a patient counterpuncher at times and did get some good business done, particularly with his right hand. But Aleem was sharper and faster and outmaneuvering him and frequently outworking Baez. Um, at the end of 10, Max DeLuca had it 95-95. Patricia Morse-Jarman had it 96-94, Aleem, and Eric Cheek had it much more lopsided at 98-92. Uh, in a post-fight interview filled with F-bombs, Aleem said, I want the winner of Fulton Figueroa. Uh, Eric, how did you score this one? And were you surprised by Baez's approach? And how would you feel about Fulton Aleem? So I had it 96-94 for Aleem, but I noted before the decision was read 
that I thought that was about as close as it could be. So I actually mm. think 95-95 was a bit more of a reach than 98-92 was. Mm. Um, Aleem was just sharper, a little faster, a little more consistent, but he could never quite pull away because Baez kept dropping in those counter right hands. Yeah, this was not at all the Baez we were expecting to see. You talked last week about him sometimes throwing 140 punches around, I think was the number. Um, here, he, w- he was just completely different, not fighting as a volume puncher. And um, at one point early in the fight, I jotted down that Aleem is lucky Baez doesn't have huge power. Um, although maybe that's why Aleem got as- hit as often as he did by the right hand, because he wasn't worried about it. Maybe he was willing to get hit a little, mm. but that right hand was really landing. If he happened to throw throw a particularly potent right hand, uh, this this fight might have uh, ended early. Um, Fulton Aleem, to me, that's a very good fight. Not quite a great fight. Um, yeah. You know, I'm thinking stylistically, Figueroa, he's a completely different style than Fulton. We saw how they meshed and how they caused problems for each other. Aleem is similar to Fulton and not quite as good from what I can tell. So, look, he's an excellent fighter. I think he can compete with Fulton. But it might be one of those fights that ends up kind of one-sided because Fulton is just yeah. always a step ahead. But, you know, I'm more than happy to see it. Uh, if if we're looking for an easy-to-make fight for Fulton, a very good Showtime main event that just isn't quite on a pay-per-view type level, then this would fit the bill. Absolutely. Uh, uh, touching quickly on the opening about uh, one division below a bantamweight. We had yet another majority decision. When was the last time, if there's been another time, where a televised three-fight card had three majority decisions? Um, Gary Antonio Russell stayed undefeated. Uh, Alexandrio Santiago, as we talked about last week, continuing to find himself on the judges' bad side. Lisa Jamper scored this one 95-95. While Steve Morrow and Benoit Roussel both favored Russell 96-94. But the three judges only agreed on three of the ten rounds. Santiago drops to 24-3 and 5 with 13 KOs. While Russell advances to 19-0 with 12 KOs. Eric, how did you score this one? Does your estimation of Russell as a prospect drop at all? Because he had a, something of a tough time at Santiago. So I had it 96-94 Russell, although he didn't feel like the winner to me. It felt more like a 95-95 fight, but Russell stole the 10th round when Santiago walked into a left hand that turnbuckled him, kind of the, the Mickey Ward, but without going down, but that move. Uh, the, that one punch reversed Santiago's momentum and stole the round and stole the fight for me. Um Boy, I, I wish I had done a majority decision, majority decision, majority decision parlay. <laughs> that, that would have been a fairly enormous return. Um, in terms of how I feel about Russell, yeah, the ceiling looks slightly lower off this fight, just slightly. Um, but, you know, Santiago's a tough SOP to fight. Nobody looks that great against him. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to see why he keeps losing these close decisions. Um, he boxes at times. He puts on pressure at times. But... Whichever mode he's in, his punches aren't quite eye-catching enough. He's doing well, but he's not quite landing the sort of shots that clearly win rounds. Um, With that in mind, I'm inclined not to say Russell was overrated or anything. I'm more inclined to label Santiago underrated. Um, Russell threw some excellent uppercuts. He threw some nice straight left hands. I thought his legs were getting tired around the seventh round, but he gutted it out. This was a great experience for Russell that should serve him well in the future even if the decision kind of could have gone either way and he was a bit lucky maybe not to have to at least settle for a draw. But, um, you know, that's the kind of card this was. One close round here or there could have swung any of these three fights. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's recap the scores for our picks competition quickly. Um, we didn't have majority decision wins for any of them, so we don't <laughs> get maximum points for any of these fights. Um, I mentioned we both had Fulton by unanimous decision, so we get two points apiece there. We also had Russell by unanimous decision, so we also get two points each for that one. But we did diverge on the Aleem fight. You had him by KO9 and get one point, whereas I had him by unanimous decision and get two points. So I now lead 75-72 as we head into December. But let's stay in November for a moment longer. And specifically, let's in fact stay on the night of Saturday, November 27th. Because in New York City, an hour or so before Fulton and Figueroa stepped into the ring in Vegas, George Cambosis shocked Teofimo Lopez in a violent and bloody 12-rounder that also had some people with short memories yelling fight of the year. Uh, Fortunately for boxing fans and for Cambosis, this was not in the end. On a thriller pay-per-view that very few people would order, this fight ended up reaching a much wider audience on zone. The Australian Cambosis really making the most of his shot. He dropped the rising star Lopez in round one with a right hand, weathered some big shots the next couple of rounds, appeared to build a lead, got floored himself in the 10th, but survived and then outfought Lopez in the championship rounds to secure a split decision by scores of 115-112. 115-111 and 113-114. Lopez did himself no favors declaring himself the winner in the post-fight interview, and not just the winner, but the winner by 10 rounds to two. <laughs> yeah. But Eric, did he have at least some kind of case? Was this fight close enough that the champion should have retained his titles? And however you scored it, how shocked and impressed were you by Cambosis' performance? Uh, as far as Lopez's case for winning, no, I, I don't think so. I had it 114-112 for Cambosos. I could see swinging one round to call it a draw, but Cambosos earned the win in those last two rounds, especially the 11th. And Teofimo is either delusional or concussed if he thinks he won 10 of 12 rounds. Um if anything, the judges helped him out, two of them scoring the first round 10-9 when it was an obvious 10-8 for Cambosos. Uh, that was a clean, hard knockdown, and Lopez had by no means dominated the rest of the round enough to make it 10-9. Um, and a quick aside on Lopez's gripe that the proof he won is that, quote, the ref raised my hand, uh, that falls squarely on ring announcer David Diamante. Um, I've said it before, I'll say it again, ring announcers shouldn't editorialize and they shouldn't try to get creative. So we're, we're waiting for him to say either and still or and new, and he pulls in and still undefeated, at which point the ref raises Lopez's hand, and then Diamante continues, he is the new. Unacceptable. You had one job. Uh, anyway, uh, um, you asked about Cambosos and whether I was shocked. Yeah, I, I certainly was. I underestimated him clearly, um, just as Teofimo Lopez did. Um, Cambosos had a game plan. He didn't deviate from it. He had the chin to get the job done. Uh, does it work if Lopez fights a smarter fight, one where he's setting things up instead of loading up? Uh, hard to say, but let's give Cambosos full credit. He was brilliant about staying at a distance to make Lopez reach, uh, and then he could counter. Yep. And and he was just herky-jerky enough to keep Lopez from being able to settle in and do Lopez things, and he weathered that 10th round. You know, we were probably one punch away from a very different narrative where, where Lopez yep. gets away with it all. Uh, but Cambosos was so calm in the 11th and Lopez just didn't know what to do with this guy who wasn't rattled and yep. was still fighting yep. his fight after getting knocked down. Um, I don't think George Cambosos is actually the best lightweight in the world, but he's the champ now. He's the lineal yep. lightweight champ and he earned it. Um, 
How about your thoughts uh, on, you know, what went right for Cambostos and what went wrong for Lopez? And is this one to grow on for Teofimo or more a worrisome sign about his shortcomings? And also, does Cambosos now replace him in the Four Princes trademark here in Mulvaney 2020? <laughs> um, so with regard to Lopez, this might actually signal a fundamental flaw that so far been disguised by the way that he's dominated opponents. But if so, I think it's an inherently reparable flaw. Uh, um, look, as, as you mentioned, you said you didn't really give George Cambos as much of a chance. I didn't give him really any chance at all. Um, and that's fine, right? It's our job to be wrong, to come up with scenarios and predictions. <laughs> We're doing a hell of a job then. We're fantastic at it. And it, it's incumbent on boxers to prove us to prove us wrong. Mm. Um, the problem is that, as you said, Teofimo Lopez apparently didn't give George Cambosis any chance either. And your boxer just can't afford to do that. It doesn't matter who you are. You always have to assume that the other guy can beat you. Um, you have to be prepared for the fact that he just might, that he's going to bring something you weren't expecting. And it didn't feel as if Lopez did that. Um, honestly, at the very beginning, I thought he seemed a little dry, to be honest, Lopez. And Judging from the way he was winging those right hands early on, he didn't actually expect to ever get much of a sweat up. Um, he just didn't appear to have a plan B or C for several rounds. He just seemed surprised that Cambosis was not only hanging in there, but actually beating him to the punch and standing in the pocket at times and firing off punches and, and moving out the way. Um, he finally did get into the groove and began wheeling him in, but it took thought disconcertingly long for him to do that as if yeah. he had the belief that all he had to do was just keep at it and like you said he came very close to actually fulfilling his own narrative and had that happened maybe long term it might not have been to Lopez's benefit because he would have just figured I've just got to do the same thing over and over and I'll eventually get there right. but what I thought was even more disappointing was when he did finally break through and drop Cambosis when he finally had himself in the position he'd been trying to get to he screwed it up and one of the things we've always seen with Lopez is he's been just a deadly finisher. And he just wasn't. It was Cambosis who rose to the occasion after that 10th round knockdown. He was the one who took the initiative in the 11th and 12th rounds. And what's made Lopez so good and so exciting is he does have this arrogance in the ring. Um, you know, I think I've used the word before when describing him. You know, that, that ability to not just swap people aside, but almost seem to be contemptuous about the way he's doing it. But we also know that when he is up against someone he respects, he has the technical ability. Mm -hmm. He produced a magnificently restrained performance last time out against Vasily Lomachenko he knew that he couldn't come out and try to blast Lomachenko out of there so he boxed him incredibly effectively for the first half of that fight followed by a real gut check in the final round but he was the opposite of that on Saturday night he didn't show that great technical brilliance and he didn't come up with the gut check at the end it is notable that Joey Gamache was a part of that corner against Lomachenko and was absent on Saturday and he was reliant largely on Teofimo Senior. And we, we spoke last week about dads as trainers. Right. A week ago, Kenny Porter threw his son under the bus. This, But I think the other problem with Teofimo Senior is that it's quite the opposite. He might be a bit too much of a cheerleader and not enough of a tactician. As I think I've said before, I first became aware of Teofimo Lopez when he was fighting on an undercard on a Terence Crawford fight in New York. And I was just standing there at the weigh-in or the press conference and his dad just came up to me randomly and said, my son's on this card. He's going to be bigger than Muhammad Ali. And I thought, 
yeah, all right. Um, but as it turned out, while watching him, I thought, well, okay, he's probably not going to be bigger than Muhammad Ali, but he's a terrific boxer. But if that's your kind of attitude going in, then maybe you, you know, you're not going to be the person to provide the necessary pushback and corrective in the corner. And that's what I mean about if this is a flaw in Lopez, it, it's clearly fixable. Right. Um, but that might be something he might want to think about. Um, but honestly, as for Cambosis, look, the guy came in with a plan. He was clearly focused. And it was a plan that required some balls to execute too, right? Because he had a lot of faith in himself and his ability to, like you said, change it up. And at times stand in the pocket there and outwork Lopez and just confuse him um, and beat him to the punch. And again, full credit to him, the other side of the coin, that he's the one who knew that the gap was closing and that when he got knocked down, he knew he needed to take it up a notch. And, and that's just what he did. And also, by the way, what a lot of class he showed, I thought, yes. in the post-fight interview. Um, uh, I also liked the way he anticipated your question by referring to himself as the emperor relative to <laughs> the four kings <laughs> rather than the four princes. Um, and yes, I agree with you. Do I think that George Cambosis Jr. is the best lightweight in the world? I do not. But he just came in and beat the guy who's the best lightweight in the world. This wasn't a flash in the pan. We underestimated him horribly. And he absolutely deserves to be in this consideration, especially if Lopez moves up. But let us also not forget the continuing looming specter of Lomachenko, who's going to want a piece of however things shake out with these kids. And I don't think we'll chase Lopez up to 140. Um, one final note, referring back again to the post-fight interview. I think that reminded us... The fighters are human. You know, Cambosis, as you mentioned several times, just lost his grandfather and hadn't had a chance to mourn. Mm. Lopez had a son 11 days ago and hasn't had a chance to see him. You've had kids. What are you doing 10, 11 days after, like, <laughs> you've, you've, you had your kid? Um, Lopez just recovered from COVID, too. Right. We expect, like, excellence from these, from these people. And they often deliver. But I do think it's important to remember what they have to go through to get to where they are. And, and I thought that really came through in the post-fight interview. Yeah, well said. All right, uh, let's uh, let's pause here a bit in between our fight reviews and our fight previews that are coming up to reveal the tweet of the week. Uh, it's my turn to choose, um, and I'm cheating. I'm picking a tweet okay. that will be eight days old by the time this <laughs> podcast is released, but it somehow escaped our eyes last week. Uh, last week, you gave tweet of the week to someone quoting the aforementioned Kenny Porter talking about <laughs> the Lopez Cambosos fight finally happening. Uh, this week's tweet of the week is about Kenny Porter and his son, Sean, and it comes from interested observer, Errol Spence Jr. Uh, at 1230 AM last Saturday night slash Sunday morning, uh, after seeing the in-ring interview in which Kenny threw his son under the bus, Spence tweeted, if I was Sean, I wouldn't pay my daddy, LOL. <laughs> um, Get the unimportant thing out of the way first. I think I've expressed before how incredibly lame I think it is to LLL your own tweet. That's usually a sign to me that you're not actually funny and you don't really know how jokes work, but uh, I won't dwell on that here. Um, other than the LOL, I love the other nine words in the tweet. Now, I think we all know Sean is going to give his dad his agreed upon cut. It's not worth getting into a legal fight with your dad unless you now hate him so fully that you don't want him in your life anymore, which I presume is not the case with Sean Porter. Um, but it's interesting to explore that fighter's mindset of yeah. how much blame or credit a trainer deserves and 
hey, if you're claiming I wasn't prepared fully, isn't that partially your fault? And yeah. I'm the one taking the punches. Why do you deserve a big cut of my purse if you didn't do your job and you're going to publicly annihilate me afterwards? Yeah. Um, but more than anything, I, I take from this a hint of empathy from Spence for Sean Porter here. Clearly, he's siding with the fighter and feels the fighter was wronged. And An interesting and revealing tweet, if, if not quite worthy of an LOL, especially not from himself. Yeah, there is a code, irrespective of whether your trainer is your father or not. There is a code, and it's not always fair to the trainer, right? Because quite often, a boxer will trash a trainer and fire a trainer, um, sometimes in the heat of the moment, often not, often a bit later on. But there's also this code of like what happens in training camp stays in training camp. Mm -hmm. And it certainly doesn't come out in the seconds after a fight has ended uh, in the middle of an interview. <laughs> uh, um, especially when you're saying, well, the reason I stopped the fight is because he sucked three weeks ago. Right. And still, I think a week on, even though obviously other events, such as the ones we've been talking about, uh, have overtaken it. I still think it's very puzzling and, and just very hard to defend what Kenny Porter did. Uh, again, Forgetting the fact even that he was his dad as a trainer, it's just like it would be it's just a baffling. Like, what are you hoping to achieve <laughs> right. other than perhaps to avoid blame? Right. Exactly. And and that, you know, I think is really what, what Spence was getting to there. Yeah. And by the way, I'll note, uh, I looked at some of the replies to Spence's tweet. They were some of them were tough. Uh, so, some of them were just interesting. Um, One person telling Spence he hopes he isn't tweeting and driving. Uh, I'm not sure if that gets it too soon. But uh, um, another person saying that Spence is running away from Crawford and it was accompanied by the Forrest Gump running really fast gif. Um, and then uh, I saw that uh, Ivan Redcatch replied with a photo of a winning bet slip, he put $100 at 15 to 1 on Crawford KO10. So a nice hit there. I'm wow. a red catch. All right. Yeah. We'll have to have him on the money punch sometime. <laughs> yes. He's better at this betting thing than I am. And he and he risks more. That's like 10 pizzas right there he was putting in right. stake. Um, okay. Um, that is enough looking back for now. Let's look ahead to the big fight card on deck this coming weekend. Not on Saturday, as is typically the case, but rather a Sunday pay-per-view starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific from Los Angeles at what is still known for now as the Staples Center, but will become Crypto.com Arena starting Christmas Day. Uh, Javante Tank Davis defends his lightweight belt against Isak Pitbull Cruz atop a four-fight card. As we discussed a couple of weeks ago, Tank was originally slated to take on Raleigh Romero, but Romero was removed from the card amid sexual assault allegations and instepped a similarly talented up-and-coming young fighter, although one with a very different style in Pitbull Cruz. Cruz lost a decision in his sixth pro fight. That's his only loss. His record now stands at 22-1-1, 15 KOs. He's just 23 years old, having turned pro in his native Mexico at 17. His last four fights, all victories, have all been on Showtime or Showtime pay-per-view. Uh, for Davis, who's 25-0 with 24 KOs and 27 years old, this is his third straight fight headlining a Showtime pay-per-view and his 10th fight in a row on one of the Showtime broadcast arms. Clearly, he's the A-side here. He's the rising star. He's favored to win. The same would have been true against Raleigh Romero. Uh, Kieran, in what ways is Cruz a potential step up from Romero? And in what ways might this be an easier fight for Tank? And is he at least a bigger threat than Romero was, in your mind, to snap Tank's 16-fight knockout streak? 
So it's a potential step up in that, first of all, Cruz has demonstrated his ability to compete at world level, or at least a step or two just below world level. You know, as you, as you mentioned, to an extent that Romero has not. You know, Cruz has wins against Thomas Matisse and Diego Magdaleno and Francisco Vargas, or, although, to be fair, only the Magdaleno one kind of blew everyone away. Um, and so, you know, Romero, in contrast, really has nothing like that pedigree. You know, the closest to world class opposition he's faced was Anthony Yigit. And to be fair, he dominated him to a far greater extent than you or I predicted he would, but he shouldn't have gotten the win over Jackson Marinez, who in turn was found wanting against Richard Comey. Um, Cruz is a step up also in that I think he's more durable and more technically sound than Romero, who punches very wide Romero, and I think would have left himself open for Davis's power punches. Um, I would have been highly confident in predicting that Davis would have maintained his KO streak against Romero. I'm slightly less confident about that against Cruz. Um, what might make it an easier fight or, you know, not a step up is that, you know, a Cruz doesn't have that same raw one punch KO power that Romero has. Mm-hmm. If you were looking to, for a way to get excited about Davis and Romero, there was always some kind of possibility that Romero would catch Davis in an exchange. And that feels much less likely with Cruz, which isn't to say that Cruz can't knock guys out, but just seems to sort of overwhelm them but if he overwhelms them he's going to do it in the first couple rounds he'll either get you out of there early or not at all over the last few years Cruz's results have been unanimous decision TKO1 KO3 KO1 unanimous decision majority decision KO1 unanimous decision unanimous decision (laughs) um and then of course the other difference and I'm not sure which side of the ledger this falls on is Cruz's height or lack thereof. He's five foot four. He's four inches shorter than Romero and an inch and a half shorter than Davis, who isn't used to punching down at his opponents. And that could be a relief for Davis. That could give him sort of an inherent advantage that he's not used to. Or maybe it's going to present himself with some troubles he hasn't experienced before. Um, You'll find out which I think is more likely when I give uh, my prediction. But before we get to that, Let's actually, I've talked about Cruz. Let's talk a little bit about Tank. Um, And when we do talk about Tank, we invariably spend a little time talking about his outside the ring issues and his maturity. Um, If you've been watching All Access, you've seen him spending some time with a new baby, which is kind of a theme. Uh, It's almost as if there's been a pandemic over the last couple of years. (laughs) Um, He looks like he hasn't been blowing up in weight as much between fights, which is obviously the, the ongoing concern with him. Um, so maybe a corner's been turned. What do you think? Do you think, do you believe that this is a more mature Javante Davis? Do you like what you're seeing out of him on all access? Or is there, conversely, reason to be a little bit concerned about a letdown, about him overlooking Cruz, or just being generally distracted in some way? So I don't think we can let our guard down with Javante in terms of his outside-the-ring behavior, his maturity, his potential for a letdown. Um, Although it's been a pretty good long while now since the last time he actually disappointed in the ring. Uh, It was more than four years ago that he missed weight and didn't perform all that well against Francisco Fonseca in that high-profile spot on the Mayweather-McGregor undercard. Every showing since for him has been somewhere between good and great, so... I think it's reasonable not to worry about his training or his in-ring performances. But outside the ring, it's harder to say. He's 27 now, does have a new baby, as you mentioned. He's at an age and a phase of life where corners are often turned. Um, I think for a lot of men, it's 
around about 25 that you work some of the last really bad decisions out of your system. You still make <laughs> bad decisions, but not like the really obviously bad ones as much anymore. Um, in addition to Coach Calvin in his corner, who I think is a great influence on him. We've had yes. him on the podcast. I got a very positive sense of him. Um, Javante also has Barry Hunter, who is one of the best people in this sport, a maker of boxers and a maker of men. Barry Hunter has been in charge in camp. That can only be good for Davis's process of growing up and staying out of trouble. So there's a lot to be encouraged by, but I wouldn't assume anything about him being entirely on the other side. Um, and, and by the way, a quick note about Isak Cruz from All Access. What an easy guy to root for. Great <laughs> family. You're rooting for his dad, too. And it's a fascinating study in contrast in the way that they train. Uh, Cruz is kind of Clubber Lang in Rocky Three, and Javante is Rocky in Rocky <laughs> Three. Um, and uh, spoiler alert, Kieran, uh, Clubber did win that first fight. Uh, there were distractions and asterisks uh, on the loss for uh, for Rocky, uh, but you know, uh, life does imitate art sometimes. Something to think about here, perhaps. Oh, there you go. Okay. All right, um, let's make our uh, predictions for the main event. Um, I'm picking first again. I trail 75 points to 72, despite my Clubber Lang comparison. I have a hard time picking Isak Cruz to win here. He's a handful. He's hungry. He won't capitulate easily. But Davis has so many physical advantages, uh, significantly faster, more versatile. He's a southpaw, and he has exceptional power, as we know, 24 KOs in 25 fights. And Isak Cruz is built to run into that uppercut. Um, (laughs) I don't imagine it'll be quick and easy. Um, Javante does have 16 knockouts in the first three rounds. I don't see him adding to that total here, but I also don't see Cruz lasting the full 12 with the amount of clean punches I expect him to take. I think Cruz has some good moments in the fight. I think his pressure bothers Davis at times, but eventually the big punches start landing. Cruz goes down a couple of times and the fight gets stopped, not with him totally KO'd like Leo Santa Cruz, but the corner or the ref stops it with Cruz taking too much punishment in round eight, I will say. (laughs) Oh, um, uh, I know that chuckles. Close. close. Oh, Not okay. exactly. The okay. Same. All right. Not exactly the same. But my notes include so many of the same things here. <laughs> um, I suspect that Cruz is going to want to try to be the aggressor here because I think that's what he does best when he does wind up in close and difficult decision fights. It's sometimes when he doesn't fully commit to what brung him to the dance and he and he gets into these boxing matches. I don't think he wants to do that against Davis, who amongst the phys- in addition to the physical advantages that you mentioned. His boxing skills, Javante, are greatly un- underrated, as well as his in-ring IQ. Um, and yet, conversely, he doesn't want to get into a power exchange with Tank either. I think Cruz is going to try to start fast, but not come forward in straight lines. He'll look to he'll try to show some angles, try to get in and flurry, look for some body shots, try to harass Davis. But yeah, after a couple rounds, it will settle down. Javante will start spearing him with his jab. And yeah, the note I've made here is exactly the same. Um, This is where Davis, for once being the taller man, will really work for him. Has a hell of an uppercut, and that'll work extremely effectively against Cruz. I think he'll start backing him up, strafing him with power punches, and start landing that uppercut through the Cruz guard. I think he might actually drop him a couple of times before he stops him. Mm. Which, in complete contrast to your ridiculous (laughs) prediction, I think he'll do in the seventh. Okay. Uh, The co-feature... On the pay-per-view broadcast is a battle of unbeatens at 154 pounds. Sergio Garcia of Spain is 33-0 with 14 KOs. It's quite tall for a super welterweight at 5 foot 11 and a half. But 
He will be looking up six inches at Sebastian the Towering Inferno Fundora, 23-year-old Southpaw from Coachella, California, with a record of 17-0-1 with 12 KOs. From what I've seen of Garcia, which admittedly is not a heck of a lot, he's a technically sound boxer without being an exceptional one. There's nothing about him that leapt out at me. Decent jab, nice overhand right, and go to the body well. Does look like he can get hit, especially by left hooks. Doesn't look to have overwhelming pace. He's resilient and tough, though. His first European title defense against Ted Cheeseman, who's limited, but a very, very rugged fighter showed that. But all of that said, I'm not sure I see anything there that's going to be enough to overcome what the towering Inferno can bring. I think it might be a close fight, especially early on, but I think Fundora will get into this groove here and it will just be too much of a puzzle for Garcia to figure out. Uh, I think Fundora by close-ish, but clear, unanimous decision. Okay. Um, this is a really good, close, competitive fight. Um, I rewatched uh, Garcia's dominant decision win over Cheeseman that you mentioned. Now, Cheeseman bears little resemblance to Fundora. Uh, nobody bears a resemblance to the praying mantis in boxing gloves, really. Um, <laughs> but uh, Garcia is a very good fighter. I think Fundora is in really tough here. Um, I, I think it sounds like I have a slightly higher estimation of Garcia coming in than you do. This is pretty close to a coin flip fight to me. Um, I'm eager to see the odds when they come out, because if Garcia is like a plus 200 underdog or anything more than that, I'm all over that. Um, he's one of those rare boxers who can fight going backward, not with a ton of power, but he can land shots while moving backward. He has good footwork. He prefers to counter punch. He's an accurate hitter, especially with his straight right hand. Fundora is a tough puzzle for anyone to solve, but if Garcia can lure him into moving forward and getting a little off balance, he can find some openings for, for big shots. And uh, Garcia, I don't think will get overwhelmed by volume. He can throw plenty of punches himself. I think I've talked myself into picking the mild upset. Um, Fandora is so unconventional that, hey, maybe Garcia totally gets his ass kicked. It's possible he can't get any work done, and it's a fourth straight KO win for Fandora. But I think the most likely outcome is that Garcia's experience going 12 rounds shows he gets stronger as it goes on. It's about even through eight, but then the Spaniard takes over and wins on points. I'll predict one questionable scorecard, and uh, in keeping with the theme from this past weekend, I will say Garcia by majority decision. All right. Um, also on the card, a very familiar face at middleweight, Sergei Derevyanchenko of Ukraine, last seen losing a competitive decision to Jamal Charlo 14 months ago, takes on a somewhat familiar face, Carlos Adamas of the Dominican Republic, who stopped Alexis Salazar in three rounds in June on the pay-per-view undercard of Davis versus Barrios. Adamas is 20-1 and one with 16 knockouts, the only loss, a one-point decision to Patrick Teixeira. Derevyanchenko is 13-3 and three with 10 KOs, uh, but the defeats, those three defeats came against Charlo, Gennady Golovkin, and Daniel Jacobs, and all three were close fights. Um, but he's 36 years old, can't afford another loss if he wants to make another run at a title. Um, I'll go first with a pick on this one. And I think it's fairly straightforward, as long as Derevyanchenko isn't beginning to hit the wall, which is possible at 36, you know, after a tough 12-rounder against Charlo and then a long layoff. But if he's pretty much the same Derevyanchenko we saw last time out, I think he's a level above Adamas. Adamas can hit. He has good speed and power. But 
if Drevyanchenko could take Triple G's power and Charlo's power, I think he can handle Adamas's. Adamas, meanwhile, seems to have a good chin. He's only been down once in his career, so this feels to me like a distance fight, but one where Drevyanchenko's skills and experience keep him a step ahead at every turn. It's scheduled for 10. I think it goes all 10 with Drevyanchenko winning about eight or nine rounds and a unanimous decision. Um, I was briefly tempted to pick Adamas here because there's going to come a point where the very close losses against the best guys is at 36 going to start sliding into close losses against the not quite best guys. Particularly when you think about what a tremendously draining style Drevinchenko has and how grueling and tough those losses have been. <clears throat> they have to have taken something out of him. But I'm going to go ahead and say that that doesn't happen yet. Um, it might be a close battle in points, but I I agree with you that I think that Derevyanchenko has the skills to come through it. I don't think that Derevyanchenko, when all is said and done, will reach the heights that some of us had hoped for and expected of um, of him uh, before he, he met Danny Jacobs, but he'll get by Adamas. Um, I don't think it'll be a blowout. I don't, th- I don't see it as being quite as wide as you do. I think Adamas will have, certainly have his moments, but I do think that Derevyanchenko will wind up with the unanimous decision win here. And in the opening bout, a pairing of veterans in the featherweight division. Eduardo Ramirez, a Mexican southpaw with a record of 25, 2 and 3 with 12 KOs. He's won three in a row, all by KO in five rounds or fewer. He's taking on Miguel Mariaga of Colombia, 30 and 4 with 26 KOs. A bit longer in the tooth at age 35 compared to 28 for Ramirez. And he's probably best known for an unsuccessful challenge of Vasily Lomachenko in 2017. I found it a little bit of a tough pick. <clears throat> We've seen both guys come up just a little short when they've stepped up. Um, before he was stopped by Lomachenko, Mariaga dropped a decision to Oscar Valdez. And there's absolutely no shame, of course, in either of those losses. His most recent loss was to Joet Gonzalez. And again, no shame there. Um, it just suggests that there's a ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, Ramirez's reverses, though, have come against a slightly lower caliber of fighter um, to Lee Selby. who has pushed the likes of Josh Warrington and indeed George Cambosis very close uh, and Claudio Marrero. I I feel like Mariaga, and I will say that of all the fights on the card, this is the one for which I have the least kind of feel, but I feel that even at his relatively advanced age, I feel he still has the higher upside here. He's not showing any particular signs to me uh, of declining. I I think he's just that bit better. And I like him to take another unanimous decision. All right. Well, I hope you're correct that you have a bad feel for this fight because I have uh, we have some swing potential here. This might be my chance to make up the points I need. Now, this is a very close call. I had a tough time picking this as well, but I I lean toward the youth here. The guy on the way up over the guy on the way down as they kind of meet right in the middle here. Mariaga is a good veteran fighter, but comes up short every time he steps up and his mediocre defense usually comes back to bite him not that Ramirez is exactly Willie Pep in there either but I think he hits harder he's fresher he's a little quicker his punches are shorter and you know what my first instinct was to say distance fight and just uh, pick the opposite decision of, of what you said but I think maybe at age 35, Mariaga will be slowed down enough to get caught. And Ramirez has shown in recent fights that he can turn out the lights. I'm going to say Eduardo Ramirez by KO in round seven of a good action fight. All right. So one way or the other, we will definitely have some kind of movement. So that's good. One would assume so. Uh, unless Indeed. we get uh, four draws, then then nothing changes. <laughs> Listen, we just had three straight majority decisions. Don't rule out the four draw parlay. Indeed. 
Indeed. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, let's move on to news. K- kind of a light news week. So we're actually going to combine other fight previews and news into one segment. And we'll uh, slot those other fight previews in where the news main event would normally go right here. Uh, the one other card of note coming up, not competing with Davis Cruz, because this one is on Saturday, December 4th, on zone from Las Vegas in the same division as Davis Cruz and also featuring a somewhat short notice replacement. It's lightweight belt holder Devin Haney taking on Joseph Diaz Jr., who went from one of the four princes, uh, or is it now five princes or three princes? I'm not sure. (laughs) Anyway, uh, he switched from one prince to another when Ryan Garcia pulled out with an injury a few weeks ago. Also on the card, women's welterweight champ Jessica McCaskill meets Victoria Bustos. Heavyweight Philip Ergovich takes on Scott Alexander. And Showbox alum Montana Love squares off against Carlos Diaz. But let's focus on that main event, Kieran Is there a path to victory for Diaz against the highly talented Haney? And if Haney wins on Saturday and Davis wins on Sunday, are we any closer to some of these princes meeting each other? There is 100% a path to victory for Jojo Diaz here. Um, Haney, as we've discussed before, may be the least convincing of the pre-George Cambosas iteration of Four (laughs) Princes. he can have moments where he looks absolutely spectacular and you think, oh, my God, this guy is, is really just a fantastic talent. And then there are times where he can seem quite underwhelming, even when securing, you know, relatively wide decision wins. I mean, that was the case um, against Uriokis Gamboa, against Jorge Linares most recently. Um, and I feel like Diaz, as I think we've mentioned before when discussing his fights, got written off way too prematurely when you figure that his only loss is to our BFF and part-time boxer, Gary Russell Jr. Um, the draw against Rahimov was not a good look when it was added to the fact that Diaz also missed weight. But by the same token, Rahimov is the real deal. And Diaz went into that fight with defeat, a very real prospect. So I don't know. Haney's, Haney's an odd one to me. I, I, I have a hard time kind of figuring him out at times there is there are periods or there are fights where he seems almost diffident in the ring as if he's just in cruise control and happy with that he's going to have advantages in height and especially reach and he might have advantages in pure boxing ability i don't think there's any question that devin haney has tremendous talent um but this is a legitimate 50 50 fight to me i can absolutely see jojo diaz outboxing and outworking him here and giving us six princes um, or, or just basically making that entire concept that I came up with absolutely ridiculous. Um, what would it mean either way for potential matchups? I think everything is up in the air right now. Um, there seems a remarkable willingness, at least on Twitter, by some of the others. I think Haney tweeted Cambosis. Ryan Garcia certainly did. All of a sudden, they all want to make all these matches. Um, perhaps they see Cambosis as a soft touch. Perhaps they see that, um, you know, there's there's an opportunity to make some good fights here. I don't know. I, I wonder if the Cambosis result has shaken things up a little bit. Mm-hmm. It is entirely possible that the Four Princes are comprised of a completely different uh, uh, or at least a halfway different uh, four individuals uh, by the end of uh, Saturday night. I just don't know at this stage what's going to make um, uh, any of these matchups more likely, what's going to make it more likely for us to actually get some kind of uh, uh, last man standing sorted out here. But I do think that Devin Haney does not want to be looking ahead to George Cambosis or to Ryan Garcia um, or to any of the other guys. I think Jojo Diaz has a real shot here. 
Well, then you'll be interested to know that I was checking the odds as you were talking. Uh, Jojo Diaz, plus 425 to win the fight. I would put some money on that. I would put some money on that. I'm not saying he's the favorite, but I don't think it's plus 425. All right. Um, We mentioned we got a few other bits of news. So let's have a look at those uh, outside the ring items from the past week. A couple of fights have been announced. First, 115 pound belt holder Joan Ankahas and Kazuto Ioka have agreed to fight on New Year's Eve in Tokyo. It's always a big fight night in Japan. And on December 11th, this was announced on very short notice, light heavyweight titleist Dmitry Bivol faces fellow Russian Umar Salomov in Ekaterinburg. Um, we spoke last week about Jason Quigley's second round knockout loss to Demetrius Andrade. Quigley shared on social media that his jaw was broken in the fight and he's undergone surgery to repair that. Uh, lastly, some pay-per-view numbers have come in. Uh, we learned about a week ago that Canelo Alvarez versus Caleb Plant performed well for Showtime pay-per-view, generating 800,000 buys, according to Boxing Scene. Now, numbers are being reported for Terence Crawford versus Sean Porter, and they're quite a bit lower. Uh, Dan Raphael's sources tell him the number is under 150,000. Uh, a fair amount of chatter around perhaps a very significant cause of that being that ESPN only made the pay-per-view available to ESPN plus app subscribers and not over normal cable pay-per-view channels and what factor that might have played. Any thoughts on that or indeed on any of this other news? I do think that ESPN Plus Factor had an impact. Not a huge impact, but but still an impact. There are some older school people and older school boxing fans who don't have smart TVs or Rokus or, or, or don't like watching on their computers and are, are willing to pay the 75 or so dollars via cable, but they're not making that extra leap, especially not if it's a fight they're willing to miss. And that's really the bigger factor here. As great as he is... Crawford remains not a big draw outside Omaha, and Porter, as good as he is, nobody predicted he would win the fight. It was one of the best fights you could make for Crawford, and yet he was about a 7-1 to one favorite. You know, for Crawford Spence, I think people would find a way mm. to figure out how to get that ESPN+. Plus. But for Crawford Porter, if you weren't already subscribing to it, it's not the kind of fight that convinces you to start. Um, but, you know, ESPN might be okay with these numbers, because... They don't have to share any of it with the cable providers. Um, look, oh, right. Only the bean counters really know how bad it was. Um, but I think I think it's safe to say it, it wasn't good. I think we can assume that much based on the numbers being reported. Um, the other news items, not too much to say. Ankas Aoka is a good fight. Um, Bivol Salamov, I don't know. I'm kind of at the read the result, then decide if it's worth going back to watch it stage with Bivol right now, I think. Yeah. All right, let us wrap up the show with the top five list. Uh, Kieran, you tasked me with ranking the all-time top five cruiserweights. The division has had different limits over the years. It was 190 for a while, then it became 200. Now it's both, depending on the alphabet group. (laughs) Um, I probably should have consulted with the world's biggest cruiserweight fan, Rafe Bartholomew, on this list, but I did not. Um, I did kind of consult with Steve Farhood in that I started by looking up his top five in Ring Magazine as of 1996. Uh, That was a a good starting point for the early cruiserweight years. You know, I figure if they weren't in his top five then, they probably shouldn't be in my top five now. Um, Ultimately, I had a list of 17 worthy of consideration, and I whittled down from there. And I'll note going in, one and two is a great debate. Mm -hmm. Then there's a massive drop-off. Then three through seven are almost interchangeable for me. If you ask 10 different boxing writers, I bet you'd get 10 different cruiserweight top fives. And maybe some of those lists would include a fighter or two outside of even my top seven. It's that muddled. Uh, But anyway, 
I will now get started at number five. I'm going with a Cuban fighter based out of Germany. He reigned from 1998 through 2001, never lost his cruiserweight title in the ring. He left to try his luck at heavyweight, a common theme for cruiserweight champs. It is Juan Carlos Gomez. Uh, He made 10 successful defenses of his belt and was undefeated in the weight class until his final fight in 2014 when he was washed and had come back down in weight, finally lost as a cruiser. Uh, Like a lot of fighters I considered for this list, he lacks a signature cruiserweight win, but His reign was one of the longest and most dominant, and he was a legitimately skillful fighter who went on to make a bit of noise at heavyweight. So Juan Carlos Gomez is my number five cruiserweight of all time. Yeah, that's a great, great pick, actually. I mean, I think Gomez is one of the guys who gets forgotten quite easily because he was around for a while. Like you said, he didn't really have any great signature fights at cruiserweight. And then he spent so long at heavyweight uh, where he was decent without being exceptional that I think that work at cruiser particularly at a time where there just wasn't a lot of excitement happening at the division means he gets overlooked but he was a really really solid fighter yeah I mean it's kind of a theme here a lot of these guys get forgotten um like my five four and three as I reveal them they'll make it clear that there have only ever been two truly great cruiserweights, two right. fighters who could maybe make yeah. it into the Hall of Fame on their cruiserweight resumes alone. Um, and, and Gomez is, yeah, he's one of those guys. Um, and at number four, another one, one of the earliest cruiserweight champs. He dethroned Marvin Camel in 1980, lost his belt in 1982, won it right back, lost it again, won it back, lost it again to Evander yeah. Holyfield, and then won it one more time. He's the only man to reign four times at cruiserweight. Puerto Rico's Carlos Sugar de Leon. He was a top three or so cruiserweight for an entire decade, from 1980 through his draw with Johnny Nelson in 1990. A long and excellent career. He beat Camel, Leon Spinks, Yaki Lopez. Lost a few along the way, but the longevity and resilience land De Leon at number four. Yep. Nothing really to, to add to that. Another one, actually very similar in many respects, he said to Gomez. Just really solid, really good titleist. Couldn't quite beat the very best. But yeah, no, absolutely. An an excellent choice. Okay. well, number three is a fighter whose name I just dropped in there. He fought Carlos De Leon and had maybe an even stranger career than De Leon did. Uh, Sheffield, England's Johnny Nelson. Um, He turned pro at 164 pounds and fought for a while at light heavy, then cruiser, lost a whole bunch of fights, including three in a row in 1992. He seemed like just a journeyman. He failed as a small heavyweight. But then in 1999, 13 years into his pro career, Nelson scored an upset fifth round knockout of Carl Thompson to grab a belt. And he went undefeated from there through his retirement in 2005, making 14 defenses. It was not a distinguished reign in terms of the opposition. The belt itself is the one that not everybody recognizes because it came along fourth and Nelson never tried to unify against the division's best, but still an undefeated six and a half year title reign all while in his thirties. It's unique and impressive and good enough to get him to number three in this particular division where most reigns don't last long because the fighters all go up to heavyweight. A silly, bizarre career in many respects. Would never have imagined it would wind up the way it did. I think, and again, it gets into the whole issue of titleists, but I think he had more cruiserweight title defenses than anybody else in the division. Uh, Again, whether you consider it like a world title or whatever. Um, He had that, uh, you know, that that sort of Harold Graham, Nassim Hamed, Brendan Ingle trained kind of style of being very 
very different from a lot of those other like those two guys that you've mentioned were much more bullish and tank like um and he had a couple of decent wins you know as Sellers was in there amongst a couple of others just a very peculiar uh, uh career a man who absolutely i think maximized the talent and skills that he had uh, at a, after a point when no one would ever have imagined he would do it yeah all right so you know who number one and number two are the question is the order uh mm-hmm. but if you have anyone other than Evander Holyfield and Oleksandr Usyk in your top two, <laughs> hand in your boxing media card, retire permanently to race baiting right wing talk shows or something, because we won't stand for your nonsense here in the fact based world. Um, I'm going to tackle these two together and walk you through my thought process, because there just isn't much at all to separate them. Um both Holyfield and Usyk unified all the recognized belts in the division inside a span of two years and then went up to heavyweight. Holyfield was 6-0 and in title fights, Usyk 7-0. and The competition was comparable. Holyfield fought uh, and beat, of course, uh, Dwight Cowie twice, Carlos De Leon, Ozzy Ocasio, Henry Tillman, Ricky Parkey. Usyk beat Krzysztof Glavatsky, Tabisu Michunu, Michael Hunter, Marco Hook, Myra Bredis, Murat Gassiev, and Tony Bellew. Honestly, in terms of accomplishment and quality of opposition, I see nothing to separate these two. So I'll turn to dominance. Holyfield had one close shave, the first Cowie fight. Otherwise, all of his cruiserweight title fights were one-sided and ended in knockouts. Usyk went the distance in four of his title fights. He was trailing against Bellew before blasting him out, and he won a narrow majority decision over Bredis. So if I have to find some separation between these two, there it is. Usyk had a couple of close calls, so I'm saying he's number two and Holyfield is number one, but I am very much open to the notion that those two could or should be reversed. Um, The other thing that strikes me as perhaps a factor is that, and we'll see, I'm sure you're going to give us, you know, some of your runners up, if not all 12 of them, um, that probably more of the names on Holyfield's resume are going to be in your, I mean, you've already got one and maybe like in your, yeah. And maybe in your also rands list and maybe that's unfair. Maris Bradis may end up deservedly in in that list. Um, And if not now, then perhaps in the future among others. Um, But I feel between the two, as if that's what slightly distinguishes him. I feel as if, like, it's not a bad cruiserweight division now. And and especially those last three wins of Usyk at, at, at that weight are really pretty solid. Mm. But it was pretty darn good, I think, the division when Holyfield was there. And he did fight those good guys. I, I, I do feel that if there is that slight difference, it is in that slight caliber of opposition at the time that he fought and defeated them in cruiserweight title fights. But I agree with you. Otherwise, there's not very much in it. Yeah, and that's a good point you make. And also, I'm thinking of it now. It's kind of like we always say you have to take the title from the champion. Mm. Um, it's kind of the same way with knocking people off their historical perch. Once you are history's number one cruiserweight, right. if it's kind of a tie, that goes to the guy who was there first until the right. other guy clearly takes it from him. So, yeah, I, I feel comfortable with Holyfield at one and Usyk at two, but it is razor close. Um yeah. Looking at my honorable mention list here, the other two that I considered for the top five were Cowie, 
who might have been a better fighter than some in the top five, but just didn't stay in the division long or, or reign very long. He made one successful defense against Leon Spinks before losing to Holyfield. The other one is Vasily Jirov, whose reign yeah. is a bit underrated and forgotten now, but he only lost to James Tony, and that was a close fight, by the way. Um, and he made seven successful defenses before that, most of them dominant. Um, others just outside my top seven. Anaclet Wamba, who reigned from yep. 91 to 94 and retired with his title. Jean-Marc Mormec, a pair of solid reigns from 02 to 07. He beat Virgil Hill twice, beat Wayne Braithwaite, lost to O'Neill Bell, but avenged it, then lost to David Hay. Um, Ozzy Ocasio is on the honorable mentions. Al Cole. David Hay, who people might think he's top five based on name recognition, but his reign is overrated. He, he lost to Carl Thompson in his yep. first shot. He got off the deck to KO Mormec for the title and made just one defense against Enzo Macarinelli, and then he was done at the weight. So I don't think he merits top five consideration. One of the trickier omissions is James Tony. He was yeah. probably a top three cruiserweight talent, but he won his belt versus Jiroff and never fought in the division again. So I can't rank him in the, the top five or even top 10, probably. And then a few other names, the Steve Cunningham, Orlin Norris, Guillermo Jones. Those are all the names I considered. Wamba's one of the more interesting names there. Mm. Uh, hardly anybody remembers him. Right. Um, yeah, there, there was no real clear-cut loss, I think, in his career, wasn't it? He had a, was it in a title fight he got DQ'd? Um, he had like five points deducted or something. In a, uh, but I don't think he was ever like clearly beaten in the ring. And he was kind of an interesting character. The David Hay one was, was one that I did kind of think about as well. It was well, a, a star that burned brightly, but not for very long. I wish David Hay had stayed at Cruiserweight. Right. And become a good Cruiserweight champion, which I think he could have been, rather than becoming an undersized heavyweight. Uh, I think he might have had it in him to have put together a very good cruiserweight reign once he got going. Um, but yeah, but otherwise, yeah, nothing nothing in there at all I, I can disagree with. It's such an interesting division for you to have assigned me to rank the top five because it just it's so unique in the way that everyone but the top two were either didn't stay long or stayed a while and right. are kind of forgotten because they never really made that big a mark. It's just, it's this in-between little division that uh, doesn't get a whole lot yeah. of glory, but has given us some good fighters and some great fights. Oh, if we're still doing this in 10 years, I'll ask you for your top five Bridgerweights. <laughs> I can't wait. God, <laughs> God, I hope we're not doing this in 10 years just well, because yes. of that. <laughs> Especially because of that. We will have to retire before we have to do that. Right. Um, all right. That will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing. We've definitely got at least another week in us. Um, <laughs> we are expecting to return Friday with a Money Punch podcast, uh, perhaps featuring Ivan Redcatch, uh, looking at the betting odds for the Davis Cruise card. Then we will stay up late Sunday night just for you, our loyal listeners, to deliver Monday morning analysis of all those fights. Plus, we will preview Nonito Donaire versus Raymond Caballo and the rest of another busy boxing weekend. The sport is finishing off the year with a bang. Until our next podcast, be safe, be kind, and be well.